welcome to uh, this conversation between myself, Matt Goodwin, and Eric Kaufman, uh, author of White Shift. Uh, Just behind. I've known... <laughs> All right, let's start again. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to do that. Okay. Okay, you don't want me to do that. Okay. Yeah, you do. Okay, fine. Let's just... Let's, we'll okay. Um, welcome, everybody, to uh, our conversation today. My name is Matt Goodwin, uh, and I'm joined by Eric Kaufman, author of White Shift. Uh, you may have seen this book uh, over the last year or so. It's caused a bit of a splash, um, uh, in, and Eric looks at all things related to populism and immigration and, and also what we're seeing really play out today through a lot of the protests and the debate around um, Black Lives Matter. And I think one of the interesting things that's happening now, one of the reasons why I wanted to, to talk to Eric is, is to really interrogate uh, and explore some of the ideas that we're hearing a lot about. So we're now talking about things like white privilege, uh, we're talking about things like intersectionality, um, we're talking a lot about power structures and systemic racism, and of course, for those of you in the academic community, these ideas aren't new, they've been around for a long while, but for those of you perhaps who, who aren't so close to, to the higher education, then perhaps some of this is, is, is fairly new. So I wanted to bring Eric along, and Eric, I, I guess the starting point is, is just to sort of hear your thoughts on the events of the last couple of weeks and, and, and how you interpret um, what's been going on. Yeah, Matt, thanks a lot. Yeah, and it's nice that we get the chance to do this, uh, since it's got to be a first for us. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think that we, to understand what's happening now, I mean, ultimately we have to go back to uh, the history of ideas, because what we're seeing, in my view, is the outworking of a set of ideas that have uh, been hitting their peak of influence. And this is not... Marxism or communism. I think that's that's very important to, to get that off the ground first, that this is really a distinct ideology, which I term left modernism, which is actually got more to do with um, anarchism, uh, which is something separate from, uh, even though there are some overlaps, it's quite separate from state socialism. This is anti-state socialism, if you like, and in some ways is very individualistic. And it goes back really to the 19th century. And also, Another strand, which is utopian socialism, this idea of a perfect world, uh, heaven on earth, if you like, and that also is quite distinct from Marxism, and that goes back to some of the early uh, utopian communes of the 19th century. So these ideas have never been defeated, if you like, in the way communism or, or fascism have by warfare and, and, and been discredited, and so they are enjoying their heyday now, but in a different form. So what we now see is um, Marxism, even though Marxism failed economically, uh, some of the cultural themes around society as, as a realm of conflict between groups, this idea of oppressor and, and oppression, that, that framework has been transposed onto uh, cultural groups. So instead of the proletariat, it is uh, race, gender, sexual, subaltern, disadvantaged groups, which become, if you like, the new proletariat that will herald the revolution. And instead of the worker state being the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, it is, uh, in fact, going to be the multicultural equity, diversity, utopia, end of whiteness utopia, which is sort of less well-defined than Marx defined the worker state, but is still that kind of millenarian idea of perfection on earth. And of course, it 
it involves this idea of redemption as well. That, that especially for uh, white liberals, this is this idea of allyship, which is that if you, uh, it's like confessing your sins in Christ, you can then have a ticket to uh, redemption and walk in the light, as, as John McWhorter of Columbia University puts it. So it's very important to understand that, that lineage of ideas that, in fact, anarchism and utopian socialism were never systematically tested and defeated in the way communism was. So let's just I mean, unpack, unpack that a bit. So essentially, uh, I mean, let's go back to that term, term that you used, and you, you write about it quite a bit in, in White Shift, left modernism. And let's just be sort of crystal clear about sort of what we mean by that. In essence, you're saying that a number of different strands of left-wing thought came together and crystallized around this idea of left modernism. And just perhaps talk to us about you know, how those strands came together. And I know in the book you talk in particular about you know, the young intellectuals and the importance of you know, groups that were in Greenwich Village in New York. Just talk to us about the history of of some of these ideas before we, we look at how they come through today? Right, yeah, I think it's important, first of all, to understand there's left and right economically, and then there is also uh, liberal and conservative culture, and, and that the one axis bisects the other. And, and really, um, the term modernism refers to this cultural liberalism, this repudiation of tradition. Um, and Daniel Bell, who actually is a key figure, really, in the analysis of left modernism, when I sort of first used that term in my 2004 book, Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, Bell was a formative influence. And, and if you read, uh, you know, Bell was writing as a sort of New York intellectual, which is a group of largely Jewish intellectuals who emerge, become anti-communism, still left, but anti-communist uh, in the 30s, and then after the war, uh, become some of the strongest critics of the student revolts, which have a lot of resonances today. I mean, these students were occupying university offices. Uh, they were allying with the Black Panthers, for example, who would occupy buildings armed with, with weapons, and in some cases struck for over a year to demand, um, say, UC Berkeley, 50 black studies professorships, that any black student be admitted uh, automatically to the university, that courses developed by students radical courses, be given credit, all of these things. And this was done through, again, force and protest and numbers. So that whole very... Just, just to be clear, this yeah. was the sort of first big liberal revolution of the 60s, right? That when people say, well, today is like 19, the, the late 1960s, in essence, this was the first big liberal revolution led principally by baby boomers who had the economic security, who had the expansion of higher education, which made them quite different from the silent generation that went before them, in that they could now indulge and engage and pursue these lifestyle issues, these post-material issues that their predecessors hadn't really uh, engaged with. Yeah, that's right. And, and part of this, of course, is the sexual revolution and, and um, the hippie movement and all of these things which occur alongside this. But what comes out of this is some of those strands, those anarchist and utopian socialist strands, uh, emerge quite strongly in these student movements. So the Students for a Democratic Society, for example, um, intellectuals like Bell, Nathan Glazer, were initially quite optimistic about these movements, as you know, particularly because they had some quite legitimate causes around black civil rights and the Vietnam War. But very quickly, 
this turn from a sort of pro-free speech right to criticize Vietnam and the war to, oh, actually you, professor, are not allowed to teach this and the course isn't allowed to have that. And pretty quickly, the New York intellectuals, people like Nathan Glazer, Daniel Bell, turned against this movement when they saw that it had authoritarian tendencies. So this was influenced by anarchism and a cultural form of Marxism, which was more influenced by Maoism, third-worldist uh, type thinking rather than classical class-based Marxism. And so that kind of new cocktail was emerging in the... Yeah. Well, that gets us into the criticism from writers such as Michael Lind and others, which is that when you get the emergence of that, you know, what Daniel Bell would call the adversary culture, and I'll ask you to unpack that in a minute, Right. but when you get the emergence of these ideas in, in the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you really start to get a growing sort of preoccupation with, with things that really aren't about class. You know, it's the, 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 the primary focus is increasingly on on race and ethnicity. Yeah, these cultural categories, um, initially race, and then towards the end of the early 70s, you start to see more on gender and, and, and sexuality. But um, And Daniel Bell, really, in this book, uh, Winding Passage, he, in an essay in 1979, does a very good job of talking about the, the spread of this adversary culture from those initial intellectuals those radical sort of anarchist-inspired intellectuals, what they would, would later be called, to what he called the new class, which is the new middle class of knowledge workers in government, in media, in the universities. And this was a rising group that actually carried forth these values, which were kind of hedonistic, perhaps, not the Puritan middle, middle brow. And Mike Lynn talks about that in his New Class War, his recent book, um, that it's not... Yeah, and and it's called the cognitive elite, and right. others have still called uh, you know essentially what we we now term the sort of winners of globalization, essentially the sort of university educated, socially liberal uh, upper, upper end of that that new elite. Right, and 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 of course they were also starting to relocate to major metropolitan areas. So you get a sorting into these large metropolitan. Areas which didn't used to have an overrepresentation of university educated, but they gradually became more and more that way. Uh, so you also have a geographic sorting uh, of this rising new middle or new class. And, but but for Bell, um, and who actually got this idea from Lionel Trilling, another New York intellectual from the mid '60s, that this actually this adversary culture was very successfully converting. That in fact the middle class was captivated in his words by the adversary culture. And so they actually watched these student revolts and the Black Panther movement, and they were enthralled, and these people became media figures, and they became very influential. Bill, Bell talks about how they shape, then, uh, consumer culture, they shape uh, popular culture, and so on, and change the sensibility of at least the upper end, the educated part of American society. I think we're kind of seeing that coming to its fruition now, whereas even if you take 1968, 69, I mean, the faculty, many of these universities very much opposed these sit-ins, and they were not really uh, on side. Some were on side with the protesters, but many of them were not, because back then they were sort of, you know, there was a con one conservative for every two on the left in U.S. universities. Now that ratio is more like six or seven to one. So it's not just the case that everything's the same, there's been a success, a successive march through the institutions and a sort of expansion in the scope. 
And then, and Bell talks about this very much, that the 60s really represented this, what really was a set of ideas held only by small groups of bohemian intellectuals like Randolph Bourne in Greenwich Village, as you mentioned, the young intellectuals who were anti-Anglo-Protestant America and talked about, you know, the dominant, their dominant group as being con confining and boring and, and oppressive and whatnot. That, that was a view held by a really tiny group of people. Uh, but in the 60s, as Bell says, it, it, because of the huge expansion of the university sector, the huge expansion of TV, um, it was suddenly on the giant screen of the mass media, right? So, so this expansion this, of scale. And this later on, I mean, I want to sort of go from where these ideas came, came through to sort of where we are today. Um, as we sort of pass through the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, so you're going through in the US, you know, the, the Clinton era, the George Bush era, uh, and you're coming up, you're coming in close to, to the onset of uh, Obama. Um, you know, by this point, you've got mainstream columnists, David Brooks and others, talking about the Bobos, the bourgeoisie bohemians, and pointing to many of the developments that have, that, that have started in, in really the 60s and the 70s. But just talk us through how we go from you know, the first sort of big liberal revolution in, in the 60s through to the Obama era. I mean, what, what's important in the, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s in, in sort of sustaining and, and spreading some of these ideas? Well, I think it is very much a, a, an example of, of just a tipping point or a threshold that's reached once the baby boomers who carry forces, this adversary culture, have reached critical mass in the universities. They were then able to become the dominant power in those institutions and institute things like speech codes, political correctness, which, which first emerges at the end of the 80s. Um, and you actually see, you know, what we would call the second great awakening. If the first great awakening was late 60s, the second great awakening is when the term political correctness emerges and you get Afrocentrism and you get big pushes on the uh, bilingual multicultural education front. Um, and this was happening, you know, Nathan Glazer was, was involved in some of these battles, for example, and, and, and you can definitely see that there was a, a surge of energy um, institutionalizing things like speech codes, things like political correctness. So we see, a, a, again, that authoritarian limiting of liberty, which comes out of this kind of uh, anarchist, utopian socialist cocktail, which is carried forth by this second wave. And you can see in that graph... Um, well, in a graph which will, will appear, the use of the term racism uh, and, and the use of the term sexism really take off at the end of the 60s in that first great awakening, but then they enjoy that second uh, spike really coming in the early 1990s with the rise of that second great awakening. And of course, we're now, as we'll see in a minute, into our third great awakening. And each time we have one of these upsurges, uh, it's, what you see is it's, it's movement activists ideological entrepreneurs that are trying to take things to the next level. So it might be Afrocentrism and speech codes in the second wave. It now might be trans uh, in the third wave. So you've got these innovations, but each time that also re reflects a deepening and growing institutionalization because we know, say, in academia that the share of people on the far left increased substantially, say, from the late 1980s up until the 2010s. Whereas what happened between the late 60s and the 1980s was simply that the, the more left liberal 
element increased its share, but not necessarily the far left element wasn't as prominent. But now that becomes more prominent, so they're able to exercise yet more influence. Um, so this scaling up, it's, it's not just about new ideas. The ideas are very largely the same, but it's really the quantification and scaling up, uh, which is really important. And now, of course, we see uh, corporations being involved. We see major parties like the Democrats, which would not have been the case in the, in the late 60s. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that yeah. because, uh, I mean, one of the influential books, certainly for me, was Michael Lind's The Next American Nation, which I, I think was still one of, the, one of the classics in the 1990s. And, you know, he makes the point in that book that you can essentially divide the civil rights era into two quite different sections. You get the, the first, what he calls a sort of colorblind uh, era, which, which is focused on essentially inclusion in existing structures that, that Martin Luther King and others were quite careful to talk about um, uh, the, the ties that cut across group identities. But then in the second period, he argues that you begin to get what he calls the overreach, which is the slipping and sliding into affirmative action, political correctness, and a lot of ideas that begin to turn people's minds towards those group identities and away from what is actually holding us together. Um, do you sort of agree with that, that, broad, that broad view? Do you think it's too simplistic? Is that sort of roughly how you see things? Yeah, very much. I think, you, and, and this is really why people like Glazer and Bell were initially supportive of civil rights and then become critics, is because it moves from this idea of equal treatment uh, regardless of color to unequal treatment based on color to achieve equal results. Whereas the other mode was equal treatment, but results might not be equal between groups. Because you have, you know, people aren't equal. Groups may be equal, but there are many reasons why these inequalities persist, and there are many different things you've got to work on in order to get there. Bell and Glazer believed that you needed to work incrementally within the system to make evidence-based policy changes that will eventually get you to where you want to go, but to try and just overthrow the system or implement quotas as a shortcut was really not going to end uh, well. So yeah, I think, I, I think that's right. I think that second half, late 60s phase, um, really was, was vital in shifting gears into where we are today. And, and that kind of, in a way, not evidence-based, not enlightenment-based, more kind of counter-enlightenment, um, emotive, expressive mode, really, uh, which, which we saw in the latter half of the 60s, is, I think, the, is a very important thing to understand because a lot of these subsequent developments, critical race theory, for example, are all predicated on that sort of continental philosophy, which is more irrationalist, which is not empiricist, which is not Popperian scientific. And, and that is very much a strain, which is, the, and that's, that's what makes it so maddening and difficult to actually have an ordinary debate with somebody about this, is because we're not dealing with facts and evidence, we're dealing with, you know, who has the right to speak, and this is what I feel, and, and this is my experience, my truth. That kind of logic is, is very difficult to counter because it's not, you're not speaking the same language. And that's, that's actually what I wanted to ask you, yeah. which is, um, you know, on the one hand, you get that sort of lineage of thought in America that finds its expression through Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazer, and others, this sort of um, skepticism toward this adversary culture, toward this growing authoritarian slant within that, that, that world. 
But in Europe, you get much more of the sort of classic postmodernism, and you get a lot of those ideas around you know, power structures and other interesting thoughts running through our, our universities. And, and where I'm confused is how do those really come together and um, uh, sort of collide? And, and, and just talk us through a bit of that. And also for people, viewers who might not be familiar with postmodernism, which, you know, is, is, a, is an academic, bit of academic jargon, I mean, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, I think the postmodern stuff in some ways has been given too much credit because really postmodernism more or less just says it's kind of a theory of relativism, that there's no, there's no objective truth. And, you know, that can be used by the right, it can be used by the left. As it turns out, this has been used in this case by the cultural left. Uh, but, but if you think about the cultural left, I mean, they are they're very unpostmodern, if you like, when it comes to, for example, measuring attainment gaps or any kind of out, output gaps, wealth gaps. So they're very empirical and not very postmodern in, in some realms, but in other realms, you know, let's say, is gender a social construct, whatever, race a social construct, they will be more postmodern. So it's not, to my mind, that postmodernism doesn't necessarily drive this. This is, this is coming more or less just from standard, you know, anarchist utopian socialism filtered through that, that bohemian modernism of the early 20th century. I mean, that's really the ideological roots. And they'll use, you know, they'll use postmodernism, they'll use um, some of the new psychology, the therapeutic ethos of safety, you know, that could be sucked in, as we see in this third uh, awakening. Uh, but I don't think they're integral to the actual ideology, which is this, comes from this core um, of anarchism and utopian socialism, uh, which is a very powerful uh, cocktail. And of course, around that, the way it's developed, you mentioned in Europe, in Europe, really, 68 was not really about Marxism. It was, it had these other elements, Maoist, third worldist, which I think are much more relevant, much more cultural. And this is bringing in the, the sacred trinity, really race, gender, sexuality, which comes on more towards the later 70s, but certainly race and gender, uh, race being at the top of the, of the hierarchy, that, that comes in right from the beginning. So I don't think those core sacred values have changed a whole lot. And I think it's really the inequality between uh, disadvantaged and so-called oppressor uh, racial groups that is driving uh, this system. And one of the questions I often get, particularly on Twitter and, and elsewhere, is why, why aren't we talking about class uh, as much as, as these other issues? I mean, what is it within this sort of, this uh, particular narrative of where we are, this, this belief system of where we are, what is it that has led to this downplaying of, of class, which has been completely absent from the discussion in the United States at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, this is sort of where I have some disagreements with some of those who would say, like Piketty or perhaps Mike Lynn, to, to some degree, um, that this is class conflict and that, you know, the overclass is, is more or less seeking to keep the working class down. I, I think, I actually think these, these are ideas that people fervently believe in. Some people are virtue signaling, but a lot of people actually fervently believe in it. And really what's happened is that, you know, the sacred category, the totemic category has shifted from the proletariat or the working class to uh, disadvantaged racial gender groups, etc. Um, and once that occurs, really the, the effect of uh, the valence is really just focusing on these new sacred values and, and not on the old ones. So it's not that they, 
certainly if you take the left, um, it's not that they don't care at all about class and poverty. They do. Uh, they, they clearly do. But on the other hand, um, what is it that you're going to be cancelled for? You're not going to be cancelled for talking about the poor and the working class because it, it is simply not sacred in the same way that, say, African Americans would be sacred in this system. And Jonathan Haidt talks about this quite a bit. Yeah. When you when you talk about sacred values, just for people that might be might not be familiar with that, and also you referenced earlier on some of the work by people like John McWhorter and others who have talked about this ideological turning as being almost um, something of a religious revival in a way, and they sort of reframe this belief system as being, you know religious and just talk us through you know some of that i mean what do you mean by sacred value and and why are we seeing a number of writers and a few others who have been very prominent in the last couple of weeks pointing to you know the way in which for example you know we've had very ceremonial denouncements of uh, white americans that haven't subscribed to the new belief system and they said actually this is taking on the characteristics of a of almost a religious cult in a way um, just talk us through that, that sort of approach and what we mean when we talk about sacred values. Yeah, I mean, I think John McWhorter's um, article on uh, the religion of anti-racism is really the gold standard here in terms of explaining the, the Christian uh, parallel and lineage of, of the woke religion, if you like. I mean, this idea that, for example, someone like a ta Coates or an Ibram Kendi who, who would, um, when they speak... Um, the correct posture in a religious sense is de deference and amen, bowing your head, is the way that you interact. So these are not, these are sort of like high priests of this religion that the white uh, liberal actually simply needs to acknowledge that the idea that you would actually look at the content of what they're saying, evaluate it against evidence, for example, is a violation of profanation of the sacred. Um, and according to McWhorter, you are simply meant to to bow down, partly because this is in the realm of the sacred. It would be like questioning the veracity of, you know, did Jesus live or not? You can't, you can't question that. I mean, this is really something that you're simply to, supposed to, to bow down before. So this is all about, uh, essentially, and Jonathan Haidt talks about this as well, the, a totem pole, if you like, of categories. Some are higher and some are lower. And then you have the fallen, which is sort of the white male uh, at the bottom, who really, because this is an, a form of original sin, the only way back to, to any kind of redemption is through co a confession of sins and uh, gestures which show that you are prostrating yourself before these gods, and then therefore, by being an ally, you can gain a kind of status which will allow you to come out of that fallen state. And, 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 I, and so it's really kind of an interesting uh, symbolic analysis. So there are many, many ways in which there are parallels with Christianity uh, in the structure of this belief system. And, and one of the reasons, um, you know, even if, if people find that convincing or not, but one of, the, yeah. one of the things that we're now discussing, fast-forwarding to where we are today, is that actually some of that might be having quite an important political effect in driving a backlash among voters who feel, for various reasons, as though you know, this is unfairly treating their group or that they're being as racist when they're not, etc., etc. And we've talked previously, I mean, your book makes this, this argument that you can trace some of the populist revolt to a clear sense among um, you know, Trump voters in the US, perhaps also Brexit voters in, in the UK, perhaps also populist voters in Europe, a 
sense that actually now the um, uh, that uh, uh, they, they are not being um, uh, treated equally, that they're not being, being treated fairly. Now, of course, critics would argue, well, you know, suck it up, get used to the new reality, and you know, this is just white old men um, uh, venting against the loss of of status. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on on some of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's what's tricky here is again because we're dealing with um, an emotional discourse. Uh, we you know, nobody's saying, okay, let's look at all, let's look at our statues and let's look at what's being taught, um, and let's come up with a set of rules that'll tell us when a statue should come down, when we should put a plaque up on it. I mean, we've seen Columbus statue now being chucked in the river, and and we've seen this figure in Bristol being chucked in the river, there's this... Gone with the wind went today. Gone, gone with, with the wind, wind. right. So, uh, and, and as some people say, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution in China very much was getting rid of any, any symbols of the old China, right, and, and Buddhist uh, figures and so on. And so this is a very sort of scary path to go down, but that doesn't mean that statues shouldn't be removed, but we need to have a, a process for evaluating a systemic, fair set of rules. And that seems to have kind of gone out the window. It just seems to be who's got the power to sort of set the narrative. I think that's what ups, what's upset a lot of people. Um, what we know also is that these sorts of um, awakenings do have effects uh, on politics. So a number of psychological experiments have been done where, for example, when you call the same policy racist or simply a bad idea, you know, if we call it racist, support for it tends to rise amongst certain kinds of conservative voters. Um, and similarly, when you call Trump a racist, support for him tends to rise. Uh, and and there's this, this is kind of a well-documented uh, reactance effect. It's, that's how it's known in, in the psychology literature. And of course, for Trump, the second strongest predictor that I found anyway in the primary, uh, him defeating Cruz and others, the reason, the second strongest predictor was hostility to political correctness. Uh, now, I still think that's not yet, at least in Europe and in Britain, I haven't found as strong evidence for that, but it may be coming. Certainly in the U.S. case, it's very much there. In essence, we're saying, you know, that the, the backlash of the 2010s was, in essence, a sort of backlash against the, the liberal revolution, albeit a delayed one, and that perhaps what we're witnessing now through the statue debate, through the uh, debates in the United States, and, and, and the reassertion of some of these the amplification of some of these beliefs is a sort of backlash to the backlash in a way. It's the kind of liberal left, I say liberal loosely, but the sort of modern left, left modernists, as you would call them, who are now backlashing against the sort of Trump presidency, against these electoral losses. Yeah, and, and if you... Place over the last decade. Absolutely. So if you look, for example, at the New York Times, uh, and there was a column came out just a few days ago in the Times, saying there was a conscious decision made to change the language from calling something racially charged to racist, for example, particularly around Donald Trump. So there's been this attempt to politicize and do what some people would call concept creep, expand the meaning of racism to encompass things which wouldn't have been racist before. Um, and so if you look at, for example, the use of the term racist, we already saw there was a big expansion in the late 60s and another in the early 90s, but since um, about 2014, 2015, there's been another big spike. You can see it in the New York Times uh, mention of this word racist and sexist and a whole bunch of other things that Zach Goldberg, I think, has documented quite well in this third great awakening. 
Uh, and, and now, of course, at the Times and other papers, uh, the younger, more woke staff members are, are more or less saying they will not stand for publishing opinions like those of Senator Tom Cotton, which, who advocated sending in um, the troops to more or less uh, quell these riots. So uh, I think that's very important. Yeah, this sort of, um, you, this awakening, and you can see it very clearly in the data. Uh, you know, if, you, if we take, for example, the recent period, you can see there's been an increased use of the term racist on Google and Google searches. And, and if you look at the states where those Google searches are most frequent, they are the strongest democratic states. So Washington, D.C., for yeah. example. Though it's not a state. <laughs> isn't, isn't that because the people would suggest racism is increasing, that our societies are becoming inherently more systematically racist? Um, well, I guess the, the problem with that is if you actually look at the attitude data and on even something like interracial marriage, which was opposed by about half the U.S. white population as recently as the early 1980s, and now there's very little. Uh, it, it's probably in single digits or just above that. And the actual level of interracial marriage between black and white has, has soared compared to where it was. Um, you know, there is a, a research in psychology which shows that, that as a problem gets smaller, um, more and more things which are actually adjacent to that come to be lumped into to the definition. And it doesn't, it's not just left or right, or it, it, can, it can concern any phenomenon. And it's quite revealing. So I just think that this is much more about the redefinition and expansion of the meaning of racism than actually uh, any increase. And you can see that on the police violence statistics where uh, very clearly there, there was quite a lot of disproportionate uh, violence against African-American suspects, say, in the 70s. Um, and you can see that that's uh, the disproportion between white and black uh, unarmed killings, for example, has come down dramatically, whereas now it's very difficult to make a case, I think, that um, that uh, unarmed white suspects have been killed at a higher rate when you factor in police interactions and, and um, violent interactions with the police. Although I'm not the perfect expert on that, and I would be open to, a, to, to, to certainly looking at the data on this, but it doesn't seem like this conversation is particularly data-driven. It's much more ideological. That essentially is, is one of the big criticisms of, you know, what loosely, you know, you, you call left modernism, others mm. might call sort of identity politics, um, the cultural left, that, that there isn't really a, there doesn't seem to be a strong desire in empirical evidence and actually looking at these issues through the prism of, of you know, what, what is rather than what, what we think is happening. And certainly in Britain, I mean, you see a very similar trend to the US. If you look at almost all of the measures of racial prejudice that we have um, since the 1970s, 1980s, they show a pretty substantial and consistent decline um, in, in, for example, you know, um, opposition to interracial marriage and, and, and some pretty um, unsavory views. Yet if you listen to some of the opinions Formers around these issues, and I'm thinking of some prominent liberal left writers who have talked about British identity and so on. They would argue that actually, when when we're tearing down statues that have some, you know, um, direct or, or indirect link to slavery, that this is actually what we must do in order to overcome our imperial past. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on what specifically has been happening in the UK over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I think it is very much of a piece with this rising uh, institutional power of left modernism of this fundamentally not 
evidence-based or only loosely evidence-based discourse because it's more of that romantic anarchist utopian socialist uh, strand which is driving this. this this is not being driven by scientists it's being driven really from arts and culture and from theories like critical race theory which are really not evidence-based and not falsifiable in that sort of popperian scientific sense so it's very hard to actually have that conversation um, and moral authority, this idea of you are of a group that's lower on the totem pole, therefore you cannot speak, uh, you can't question my experience, my truth, all of that kind of stuff. You're part of the problem. Yeah, that, that if, you dis if you disagree, you are part of the problem, right? So it's almost got that Maoist, Kafkaesque uh, quality to it. And, and really, I think where we need to get to is, is a place where we can come up with agreed rules and bring some reason back into this um, and bring some sort of objective definitions that are tied to what most people think the meaning of racism is not what um, you know Robin D'Angelo or critical race theory thinks is racism which is if you deny racism you're a racist kind of you know this sort of uh, to, to and I actually think the conservative and right side has very been very much complicit in this in the sense that they have not provided um, any sort of reasoned uh, response to this. All they can do is, you know, yes, they can call people woke uh, and, and they can say they're opposed to this, but they don't actually have uh, any well-worked-out political program, any well-worked-out sort of answer to this. And the, especially the political parties have performed incredibly poorly. Um, you know, just... On that, I mean, I, I would just sort of add to that by saying that, yeah. you know, if you take the UK or even the US, you, you can certainly make the argument, I think, at least, that on one hand, you have right-wing parties that are winning national elections that are uh, you know, electorally um, winning these battles, but culturally, arguably, they're they're ceding a lot of ground on these on these issues that, that left modernism and, and just you know, standard social democrats are are, are now um, uh, really controlling. And I, I I guess you know the sort of lingering question underneath all of this in our discussion is you know why does this matter? So if you've got somebody watching this video who participated in a peaceful protest against the um, uh, against the, the murder of um, George Floyd, you say, "Right, well, well, so what? Right? Isn't all of this a good thing? Isn't all of this moving us in the right direction anyway?" I mean, what, what's what's your sort of answer to that? Well, well, there's two things. One is that um, when you make an unjustified charge of racism, it's like in a football match where uh, you dive, someone doesn't actually foul you, and you take a dive. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, it's no big deal. Okay, um, the person gets a penalty, but at least you, at least we're cracking down on fouls. Yeah, we might overdo it here and there. The problem you get with that over-policing and uh, calling of, you know, it's a, first of all, it's an injustice against the player who didn't foul you. And likewise, somebody who didn't do anything racist, um, who is accused of that, number one, it represents a big injustice and it may be a slur against a group who feel or it might be the police it might be you know white british whatever so there's number one the resentment that'll come from that slur uh, number two if they feel that their past is being in some way denuded their heritage is being lost then that's also going to arouse resentment so you're building in uh, division now of course if this is justified so someone who is a, an outer out slave trader monster but fine, but there should be a procedure for making that case and saying, look, the, not, the negatives in this column are just so much bigger than the positives. Um, 
that's number one. But the second thing, of course, is the, these effects that you talk about. You know, what does the, what are the downstream effects of this? So, for example, if political correctness means we can't talk about immigration levels without being called racist, and no one touches immigration, um, the only people who are going to touch it are populist parties. When we've seen that in Sweden, Democrats. Yeah, I mean, there'd be no Trump. There'd be no Sweden Democrats. No AFD without mainstream parties who are too scared to cross these red lines set by left modernism, right? So, so part of what's going on, or Tommy Robinson wouldn't be around if you didn't have grooming scandals, which, again, would have been much less of a, of a winner had not the authorities been so scared to, to talk about this for fear of being labeled a racist, right? So you have all these kind of downstream effects which indirectly are driving the, both the populist side uh, and, and, again, I think unless the mainstream, the mainstream left and right, the sensible people, uh, come to see that actually you have to reach a compromise on these cultural issues. You just can't keep bending the knee, if you like, to new ideological innovations. Well, that's one of the points I certainly made this week, where, I mean, one of the things that I found quite striking is, you know, there certainly is a view that the sort of more militant radical end of this left modernism may end up burning itself out by calling to defund the police and you know pushing proposals that are wide, you know, widely unpopular among ordinary americans i think defunding the police is now supported by 16.16 percent according to the yougov poll a couple of days ago which is why biden and others are rapidly disassociating themselves from it but what i haven't really seen over the last few weeks are any otherwise reasonable sensible voices on the center left actually using the evidence and, and the research that we have to point out that some of the claims being made are wildly disproportionate to you know, what we know from the research. And I think it's that silence that I find quite troubling, that sort of view that, you know, we will let the more, we'll let the more radical uh, wing push on with these issues um, without sort of a, an open consideration or a discussion about how all of this actually might just be cultivating polarization. I mean, I'm pretty, you know, I think we're saying yeah. the same, singing the same song here, and I think, you know, go down, follow this to its logical conclusion, and the only thing this is all going to bring up, unless we get back to that more inclusive, deliberative, evidence-led conversation, is more right. polarization. Right, right, because they may have a point, right? It may be that when you look at the data, okay, yeah, there's a racial disparity, and we've got to take steps to close those, those loopholes. Um, but you're right. I think the problem is the sacred values and the advers the old adversary culture in a different form, which is closing down debate. If you criticize aspects of the movement that is out there looting and rioting, uh, but but you know if you start to criticize even some of their claims, then the taint of racism can be sort of applied to you, and that fear of being excommunicated and exposed as not being an ally, uh, you're not going to actually be redeemed you know this 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 is very powerful and i think again that shows where um this structure of ideas can lead to terrible consequences not least by the way on minority groups themselves we've seen the bloodiest weekend in chicago um and these are all black victims that are getting gunned down by in lawless areas i mean you know there's no focus there's almost no focus on the terrible toll in black lives that these protests have led to and also, uh, you know, you could also talk about, you know, victims of police violence in general who are 
who are not black are not getting the same, you know, a lot of the police brutality which was meted out to George Floyd and which is rightly being condemned uh, also is being directed at innocent white and Latino victims and that doesn't seem to generate much interest. You know, so if there's a problem of br police brutality and, and militarization, then that, sh that problem is the big problem and maybe the slight racial disparities are the much smaller problem, but know that the bigger problem doesn't have the sexiness really for this belief system that the smaller problems, even if those disparities exist, uh, does. And so, the, so it, what it leads to is a complete distortion of, of priorities of where society should be spending its resources. Uh, which doesn't benefit people of color really at all, um, and or, or or if it does benefit them, the, the disbenefits seem to outweigh the benefits considerably. That analysis is just not there. And now, of course, there are important groups of people, like the 1776 group of African American writers, uh, people like McWhorter and, and um, Coleman Hughes, and, and they're trying to push back and say, wait a minute here, we're actually being victimized by this narrative, uh, and, and we need to get out of this pattern which we've been in since the late 60s riots which really set us back um but but they're having you know they're doing very well and they are some of the most exciting writers um on the scene right now but uh it, it remains to be seen just on that area yeah. it does sort of seem to me that there is this vibrant cultural space out there where people aren't questioning what is going on and i don't you know i think there is um there is a very strong public appetite to have this discussion about, you know, what it is, belief system, if 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 it if it is as coherent as, as people suggest, and and you know, one of the things that we've seen over the last forty-eight hours, a uh, couple of days, um, has been a real surge of interest in the critical race theory texts that have informed this thinking. But if we were to perhaps suggest to people some of those. Uh, writers who have been more critical uh, of this uh, of this police system. Who would we be talking about and suggesting? Well, you mentioned Mike Lind, of course, just in terms of the overall picture. Uh, it's very useful. A lot of these sort of writers who are kind of left-wing on, on economics, but on the cultural side are very skeptical of the adversary culture. I mean, in terms of some of the newer, well, some of the most interesting African-American writers like uh, John McWhorter and uh, Coleman Hughes and Glenn Lowry and Thomas Chatterton Williams and a lot of the people who are involved in that 1776 movement, I think, are really, I mean, I, I think they're really exciting, really interesting. Um, and I think, yeah, their work probably does, it's already got a lot of exposure. Um, there are also a number of African-American criminologists, um, Wilfred Riley and Roland Fryer and others, who are, who are just pointing out the holes in a lot of the claims being made by um, some of the sort of more extreme proponents of this um, of, of police racism you know these theories which are based ultimately more in high critical race theory than in in, in actual solid multivariate analysis and they're simply doing that very important work of, of exposing that um, but yeah I just think in terms of the broader question of analyzing this big left modernist uh, phenomenon. Uh, you know, that, that is something that I'm sort of planning to do more of, but, but which needs, uh, you know, and there are a lot of people, of course, in this space criticizing the intellectual dark web people, for example, but, but I don't, what I don't see is, is a lot of practical policy being done in terms of trying to get into these institutions, the cultural institutions, uh, you know, the educational institutions, the 
to some degree government agencies, um, the media, etc., to try and actually resist what seems to be almost an inevitable sweeping through uh, of this ideology and, and, and more people to stand up against its excesses. I, I've been kind of dis disappointed, certainly in, in the government response here. Uh, I think it's been very incoherent and not particularly uh, well thought out. And, and I don't think there's much of a plan. I mean, if you look at the race disparity audit in Britain, I mean, this is a simple idea of like Group X is underrepresented or overrepresented, and if it's if it's a minority group, then that must be evidence of discrimination. I mean, that is a, that is sort of a violation of of you know statistics 101 that some bivariate correlation somehow uh, indicates there's an effect. It's it, at best it's a first step. Um, you've got to you've got to do the hard work of trying to knock down competing explanations. Just the fact that, that was introduced by a conservative government in a very uncritical way. Uh, and there's been almost no attempt to reform this equality diversity apparatus which is gaining ground in, in all of these institutions. And the, they're all more or less being run by people favorable to this ideology. And conservative governments certainly have, seem to have no plan whatsoever uh, to address that. All they can talk about perhaps is, oh, well, we'll cut the universities or we'll cut the BBC or which to my mind is simply not going to be a solution. You actually have to get your hands dirty and go in and say, no, we've got a better policy. Uh, we want to see this and that, or we want to, we want to alter the way equality diversity is done uh, to make it based on, for example, the pipeline of, of um, applicants rather than some notion of a general population that has to be matched in proportion. You know, just trying to sort of get into that policy detail, I don't see much of that uh, occurring um, from the conservatives, and, and I think that's that's a real weakness. Yeah, and I think conservatives are certainly struggling to make sense of this make sense of this particular moment. I think they're I'm not entirely convinced that they have the vocabulary, the language, and the you know the recommendations to navigate it. I think obviously one of the primary objectives that we that we face today, that we that I think we have today, is to try and um, hold up and, and support that that middle that middle uh, ground of ideas and that viewpoint diversity, where we can develop the critical thinkers and the you know the the leaders of tomorrow to be able to um, challenge and and interrogate some of the ideas that are sort of accepted without question and, and often sometimes without empirical foundation. Um, which, which I think has been one of the more concerning elements um, for me over the last few years. And you know, John Haidt and others in the US have talked about this, Heterodox Academy and other organizations like that have also talked about this. And uh, it's part of the reason I wanted to sit down and have, have the conversation with you. So what I'm going to do, Eric, and for those who are watching, is I'm, I'm going to put a bunch of links underneath this video so you know, we can flag some of the, um, some of the thinkers and texts that you mentioned. Um, from Daniel Bell all the way through to, to today, and of course your own book, um, White Shift, and uh, and your book now, too, <laughs> National Populism. It's, it's, it's a classic. Um, and uh, Eric, thanks for your time, and I'm sure we'll carry on the conversation. And uh, thanks to everybody for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Great. Okay. All right. Let's see. Let's see <laughs> if, uh,